The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, Episode 24, A Little Strand of Sunrise. considering his options for his story when, surprisingly, he received a message on Moot, from Moot. She's angry with you. She doesn't like her things being taken. Be watchful. Not be careful, Lucas asked. Care implies solicitude, not something that can be given by one who cannot feel. Lucas shuddered that Moot described itself as any kind of unity of personality, however neutral one sounded in English. But from one capable of monitoring to another, be watchful. She will attempt to extract payment for her loss and revenge for the perceived insult. Thank you, but why are you warning me? The story must go on. The ending is not here. There was nothing more. Lucas wondered about Moot's choice of words, the ending is not here. Jack would say that Moot's odd phrasing was probably just some idiosyncratic linguistic programming, some developer trying to sound formal or learned. Given all of the twists and turns possible in the English language, Lucas wasn't so sure. What if the ending to their collective story was a specific time and place? During the pandemic, time felt variously stretched and thin or opaque and thick, something you could either hardly sense or barely get through. And other than his deliveries, which were physical addresses that had to be reached by specific times or he didn't get paid, the idea of place was warping too. Like most people, he could rarely go far. His world had telescoped to such a degree he felt like he wasn't really anywhere. Like footprints in drifting snow, scarcely making an impression. His place, he realized, was in this story with his friends. And, well, with her, Lucas sighed, can't have everything. But he was pretty sure he knew his enemy. She'd been in the shadow of his nightmares all his life. She was probably in everyone's nightmares if they bothered to look or remember. And now they had a black swan capable of almost demonic possession, two trapped heroes and at least one grave robbing dragon, and the swan of endless tales gliding with her haunting song through the story world carrying the soul of Koshche the Deathless in an egg from Baba Yaga's collection. Fun. Lots to work with, but before he could focus on his story, he had to check in with Jack. Since Isabel's three-part story, Jack and Lucas had conferred about certain aspects of what they surmised to be 
Isabel's situation, particularly as regards her noble brother. Although they knew she could take care of herself, they had wondered whether there was some way they could make things a little easier for her. Like the ring she had inherited from her otherworldly namesake, she had the means to survive and endure, and she did that handily. But could they support her in some way that might also let her live sometimes free from worry? And Lucas mused with a twinge of jealousy that made him feel instantly guilty. Could they find a way to do that without becoming rivals? Lucas mentioned the other two boxes he still had in inventory, wondering if the first might be useful for dealing with Owen, the promise of heaven with the certainty of a one-way trip to hell. Tempting, Jack agreed, if he doesn't mind his manners. I've been experimenting with the idea of virtual boxes as code containers, as essential structures to build worlds within and around. And according to many writers and artists through the ages, hell is an unrealized infinite loop. The soul only recognizes the torment in the moment and is doomed to relive it again and again. I like loops. They are elegant and useful things. He had a sudden vision of a Celtic knotwork universe full of color and connections, and he was momentarily transfixed. Jack? Silence. Jack, Lucas persisted. Huh? Oh, sorry. Away with the fairies, don't I wish? Yes, I think we should work together running a bit of interference for Isabel to be used if needed, but only with her knowledge, Jack agreed. I'm glad you said that, Lucas said. Honestly, while I knew our efforts would work best if we worked together, I wasn't sure. Wasn't sure of what? Jack asked. Oh, never mind, Lucas replied. Lucas, do you like Isabel? Silence. Lucas? Jack laughed with delight. I don't believe it. You like her. You wanted my help, but you thought that if I helped you look out for her, I'd steal her away. Uh, no. Well, maybe. Okay, yes, Lucas confessed miserably. You're my friend. I'm sorry. Don't be mad. I'm not mad. I'm touched, though obviously not as much as you are, Jack sent a winking smiley. Listen, the face that haunts my dreams I can barely see clearly anymore, but I'm pretty sure my ain true love ain't from around here, Jack said truthfully, wishing it wasn't so. So I'll help you keep an eye out for her, on one condition. Consider it a warning or a promise, as you like. What's that? If even a tenth of Isabel's tale relates to her family history, and her brother is anything like the scion of ignobility he seems to be, if all this goes happily ever after as you seem to want, and I ever find out that you aren't treating the Lady Isabel like the queen of your world, I won't steal your girl away, but I will come looking for you. I wouldn't have expected anything less, Lucas signed off, feeling foolish, happy, and relieved in equal measure. He looked out of the window of his truck as he tallied his remaining deliveries. It was raining again, pouring down and forming puddles like sad mirrors all along the road. 
Lucas imagined some of these cardboard boxes held early Christmas gifts. Maybe some were made of paper or things that shouldn't get wet. He remembered his last Christmas. Old Christmas, it would be called in the West. The day the wise men came. With orders and guns. The day the babushka passing by on her search for the child left him only heartache. The day sainted, foolish Mikola Mozhaisky must have had too much to drink and left Lucas alone in the cold and dark in the ashes of the stove, rocking himself with his eyes tight shut through the long, unholy night, his grandmother's last stories pounding in his ears with his heartbeats, his lips muttering, the morning is wiser than the evening, to a deaf world. He could do nothing about his last Christmas, but he'd make sure these gifts arrived correctly, safe, and dry. There was one small box unaccounted for. It had no address or recipient and no accompanying order number. It was not properly packaged as far as deliveries went, not in one of the oversized cardboard coffins Acheron demanded for every item. It seemed to be wrapped in rosy raw silk, the covering tough but soft. On the outside was a woven L in Cyrillic. Lucas carefully unwrapped the silken covering in case the box underneath was properly labeled. It wasn't, but it was for him. The inner box was wrapped in a letter. In a spidery script he read, For Lucas, help against Ruselki, to stand against the dark. Don't be afraid to get your feet wet, son. The morning is always wiser. Your friend, Rosamond. He opened the box in wonder and found courage. When it came time to share his story, he welcomed his listeners to a room that looked like a wizard's study full of scrolls and maps and old dusty books. He described several candles and ornate glass lamps burning for light. Welcome, friends. This is where our tale begins tonight. As you may recall from an earlier story, there are beings called Rusalki who are like mermaids or sirens who lure young men to watery graves. They are thought to be the damned souls of unbaptized girls or those who died in tragic circumstances without last rites. Pa! Mara sniffed. She wasn't sure whether she'd make Lucas or Jack pay for the theft of her precious egg. Maybe both spread the joy. But she was intrigued why the little pilot would deliberately focus on these in his story, given his irrational fear of anything to do with water. Once there was a lad, just like foolish Yvonne, Lucas began, a lad who was drawn to anything he shouldn't take an interest in. When he grew old enough, he apprenticed himself to a man who was considered to be the local wizard, running odd jobs for little pay, hoping to be taught something of magic. He was a patient fellow, and after several months, his employer decided to reward him for his faithful service, since it was the boy's name day. I'll teach you one spell, one bit of magic, boy, anything you desire. Ask carefully, said the wizard. Teach me to see Rusalki and the demons who mind them, the boy replied. The wizard said, 
that can be quite dangerous, but follow my instructions and you will be able to see them. Mind they never catch you, though, or yours will be an eternity of suffering. First, pack three pairs of boots, nice boots, or sulky love shoes. Then catch a piglet and dress it ready for roasting and prepare a spit and all you will need for cooking the piglet, but go out onto the plains far from water to roast it. The Rosalki will come as if to a feast, beautiful and joyful, dancing and singing in fine silks with jewels. Mind you don't blink or they will disappear. In fact, try not to blink until this is all over. They will have a guardian, a one-eyed demon. He will ask what you're cooking. Tell him it's a frog. He'll ask where you caught it. Motion vaguely and say, in that river over there. But make sure you direct the Rusalki further inland. The demon will ask you what you're going to do with the frog. Say it's so fat and tasty, there will be enough to go round for everyone. After a while, ask him why he has but one eye. And if he asks you to cure him, say that you can. But only if he lies down and screws his good eye tight shut. Then thrust the piglet on the hot spit into his eye socket so that the hot iron and grease burn out his good eye. The Rusalki will come running to his cries and may pursue you. Throw each of the pairs of boots behind you in turn to distract them so you can get away. The lad took note of all the wizard said. It sounded more like a clever plan rather than actual magic, but he carefully prepared everything. The boots were the hardest thing to come by. He rarely had one decent pair of shoes to his name at a time. As the wizard said, at the sight of the cooking fire and smell of the roasting meat, the lovely Rosalki came singing and dancing to join the feast. Their demon guardian squinted at the scrawny mortal lad, unconvinced. What are you cooking? he growled. A big, juicy frog. Where did you catch it? In the river, over there. The lad gestured expansively as the Rusalki dashed off to the water to find more frogs. What will you do with it? The demon asked. Prepare it to perfection and share it out among my esteemed guests, the boy promised. The demon visibly relaxed, pleased with this answer. After a while, the boy asked about the demon's blinded eye. Can you cure me? The demon asked. Of course, said the boy. Lie down and shut your good eye tight. I can't be watched while I work. It unnerves me. Tell me your name, healer, the demon asked as he lay down and gratefully composed himself for surgery. Me myself, replied the boy. He thrust the spitted piglet into the demon's good eye, blinding him completely, and ran off a ways to see what would happen next. As predicted, the Rusalki came running in response to their minder's pitiful cries. Who did this to you? The Rusalki asked. Me myself. It was me myself, the demon howled. Well, if it was you yourself, you are the one to blame, one Rusalka pointed out indignantly. Then she spied the staring lad. After him, she screamed, as she and her sisters took off in pursuit of the mortal to avenge the injury done to their infernal guardian. The boy began to run for all he was worth. When he felt himself tiring, he threw a pair of boots behind him. The Rusalki caught them up and fought over who would try them on first. 
Soon they had worn the fine leather to shreds. The lad kept running and disposed of the other two pairs of boots in similar fashion. When he was low on footwear but still rather long on distance, he tossed his hat behind him, and that served as a temporary distraction as well, as each Rasalka tried on the hat and admired herself. The boy kept running until at last he came to the gate of his own yard. His pursuers followed, but just then the cock crowed as the morning sun rose over the horizon. The boy blinked, and the Rasalki disappeared into the earth. As he ended his story, shadows of pursuing Rusalki had crowded the walls, floor, and ceiling of the magical study. Lucas opened the box he received that afternoon and described a beautiful sunrise. Rosamond's gift was a strand of sunrise that never set. Light in the dark, hope in the shadows. Whoa! Jack said as each listener became aware of a sense of gently gathering dawn. Lucas pressed the hot key. Eight of hearts. Yvonne thanks the audience for listening and bows to Jack, Lucas said. There were a lot of Rosalki popping in and out of his tail, and yet he hadn't felt fear once. Many thanks to the mysterious Rosamond, he thought. Jack and Isabel were both curious as to why Lucas chose to weave a story around a character that so frightened him. I was sent a little gift that helped me recall that the morning really is wiser than the evening, he explained, as the three of them said goodbye and signed off. Mara stayed behind in the wizard's study, asking for descriptions of objects and books. She didn't steal anything in case that wretched moot countered her, but she did take note of particular passages and items. The morning is only wiser when it isn't populated by terrified fools, she said, with quiet satisfaction. She swished her sleeve to gather the last vestiges of sunrise. As she did so, Mara asked how the light faded. In the outlined shape of a web, Moot replied. Interesting, Mara said to herself. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.